This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Hi, welcome to the Beyond Zero Emissions radio show. Um, it's Erin Jones here. I'm glad to be back with you after a bit of a time away. Uh, we're going to get straight into it because we've got a lot to cover today. And um, I just want to start off by giving a notice that it's the BZE discussion, monthly discussion group is on tonight at the University of Melbourne. And tonight it's Brown to Green Transition with Matt Grantham. And that is... Um, Matt has recently done a Master's in Applied Finance at Macquarie Uni and is going to outline some of the um, some of the things that happened in Germany in terms of moving to renewable energy. So we'll get that one out there nice and early because if anyone wants to get along, it's from 6.30 till 8pm, so you might need to start thinking about getting yourselves organised. And just a note that that is in a new venue now and it is in Theatre 1 in the old geology building at Melbourne Uni, which is a different venue to the normal venue. So I think that one's just for this month, and check on the venue next month. So that's our first cab off the rank. We're going to get straight into things. Um, we've got our first guest on the line, and um, tonight we've got a bit of a theme around divestment and um, you know how do you use your money for for good. So let's get straight on with it. So hi listeners, we're talking today with Alex Georgiou and he's from Shine Hub. Welcome Alex. Thank you. So today we're going to have a little bit of a chat about what your organisation is doing and um, I know that you've just done some exciting bulk buy schemes with solar so we look forward to kind of hearing all about that. But can you start off by just giving me a bit of background about Shine Hub? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Shine Hub was started about a year ago to help make it really easy and affordable for homeowners to switch to new renewable energy solutions like solar and battery technology. Um, we started off doing uh, local bulk buys, so working with a few communities around New South Wales, uh, Newcastle, and Northern Rivers to help uh, almost 130 homes uh, switch to solar and battery technology. Mm-hmm. And now we're expanding uh, nationwide with our innovative online platform. Okay. And um, so you, you're saying that you've been going for about a year. I noticed that you've, you've got a, an, uh, an accent there, Alex. So you've worked in this field before and, and overseas, is that correct? Uh, yes. Um, my American accent comes from California, mm-hmm. uh, where I spent the better part of six years doing all kinds of different home energy uh, improvement uh, roles, so mm-hmm. from energy efficiency to solar uh, to then recently battery storage. Yep. About four years ago, I came to Australia uh, to help you know, spread the, uh, the the customer experience that we were known for uh, through a, a company I used to work for uh, called Sungevity. Um And after that, uh, I spent a few years learning more about the solar and battery solutions. And now we've created an online platform to help uh, bring that to the masses in a really cost-effective way uh, that also makes it really easy for homeowners to understand just what it takes to, to replace the electricity bill uh, with with solar and batteries. Okay, and so um, so how would you kind of what are the mission and objectives then of um, Shine Hub? Yeah, well, 
we've been in the industry for a long time, myself, my business partner, Jim Kim, and what we've noticed is that a lot of people want to go solar. They want to be able to switch to solar panel for their homes, but it's very confusing, and there's a lot of confusing marketing messaging and products out there, and so people really don't know who to trust to be able to talk to in terms of getting the right information. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was the motivating factor that caused us to, cr- to create this new process. And what we've done is we've split apart the product uh, selection and advice from the installer selection. So uh, we don't do the installations ourselves. We work with local solar providers who have been around for a long time uh, and have a great reputation and are also highly trained uh, to, to install these, these solar and battery systems. And we work with homeowners to provide independent advice to help figure out the right products, so panels and batteries um, or off-grid solutions that would make sense. And then we source quotes from local installation providers um, who could provide that installation. Right. So I think, you know, most people will be um, pretty aware of... Uh you know, going about getting getting solar on their, their roof. But one of the things that I really want to delve into a little bit more is the bulk buy schemes that you've been involved in because I think that's a pretty interesting way to go about it. So can you tell us a little bit more about, about that? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, with the community bulk buys, we look to partner with local community groups um, such as renewable energy groups or just folks that are trying to improve their community and provide a really educational experience where we help homeowners understand what's available, and then we also bring the hand-picked installers and products uh, as an option for them to make the switch if they're interested. So the way it works is, for example, in Northern Rivers, we work with community-owned community groups like Inova Energy, which is community-owned power, and then also Quorum, community-owned uh, renewable energy, Molumbimbi. Yeah. We, we've chatted with Inova before, actually, so um, the listeners may remember that and be familiar with, um, with what they're doing. Fantastic. Yeah, they're amazing. And, and, and the mission that they're going for and really helping homeowners take control and, and take the power back is really aligned with you know, what, we, what we feel as well. So. We did that in May and June. We had about nine different local events around the Northern Rivers area, um, and about 1,500 people were signed up for those events to come and learn about you know, solar and battery technology. Mm-hmm. Um, and from there, uh, 110 people signed up to actually make the switch for uh, solar or, or batteries uh, through our partners, partner installation providers. Mm-hmm. And that was five local companies, um, who've been in the area for at least five years doing solar uh, and have, have great reputations through the Australian Solar Council's Master Installer Network um, and CEC uh, Solar and Battery Train. And those, those five providers have been doing the installations over the last couple of months uh, and that's just finishing up uh, this month now. Right. And so obviously, you know, as a, um, you know, your organisation kind of spearheading that and getting consumers to look at that, You've got to do an amount of vetting, haven't you, because you want them to have a good experience with those installers. Exactly. Uh, one of the biggest issues with bulk buys in the past is they tend to be kind of low-quality, uh, low-cost experiences, and the customer ends up suffering. Uh, it takes a long time for installation or the quality suffers. So what we do is really help um, alleviate that by researching and hand-picking the top five providers in the area that we feel uh, are not only trained and qualified, but had a track record of, of success. Mm-hmm. 
and we we manage that uh, for for the community. So uh, we we provide advice to the each homeowner on a one to one basis after the local events to help them design and configure the right size solution. Um, and then once they sign up, everything is managed through our online tracking portal. So very similar to if you order you know clothes online and you can see that the product's been shipped, it's kind of on its way and it's on the way to you. Uh, we've created a bespoke software solution that allows solar customers to see the exact same thing for their solar orders. Everything is managed online in one easy-to-use portal, uh, and then when the installation is, is ready, um, local installer shows up for for the installation, and they become your, your local partner to uh, going forward. So, so going forward, it would be that local installer who would still hold all the warranties and, and will hold responsibility for the warranties and such as that... Kind of, I'm just trying to understand the nature of the relationship between, you know, the um, the home owner, yourselves, and the installer. Uh-huh. Uh huh. You can think of Shine Hub as a as a support for the local installers, uh, local installation companies. Um, we provide in, in the bulk buy scenario, we provide the the products and are are responsible for all of those warranties. Uh, and your local solar company is responsible for the installation warranty uh, after after the installation is complete. Um, that said, one of the big benefits of uh, working with ShineUp on the bulk buys is that we stand behind the warranties so that if the local solar company, for whatever reason, is, is not around to service uh, the warranty down the track, uh, then ShineHub provides that, that, that warranty support uh, to make sure the homeowner is protected. Okay, so that kind of gives homeowners a little bit of a feeling they've, they've kind of got the support of yourselves and the in- installer as well. Yeah. Yeah, and, and we choose installers that have been around for at least five years so that you know, they have a track record there. Um, but just for extra safety and support, um, we, we back up everything uh, just to, for, for peace of mind. Yeah, okay. And look, I, I notice here you're saying in that um, 110 households that went so generating over 30000 for our community partners to fund future projects. Can you explain how that works? Yes. So as part of our community uh, bulk buys, what we do is we, we donate a, a percentage of the proceeds back to the community groups to further their renewable energy ambitions. So you know, Inova has a nonprofit arm that helps with the adoption of renewable energy, mm-hmm. and Community Energy uh, Molumbimbi has done some community projects for solar and that sort of thing. So um, this allows uh, the, the community groups to actually further their causes by, by helping um, local people go solar with the bulk buy. And how is that money generally being used? Is that being sort of putting on solar on a community-owned facility or is it outreach or education in the community? Has there been a variety of, of ways that, that that project funding um, has rolled out? Yeah, exactly. Uh, and it's case by case. So we, we feel that the people in the community know how to use it best. And so we, we ask the community groups, you know, how do you want to use this? And we, we help make that happen. Okay. And so, going forward, then, what are what are the you know current campaigns that, that you're working on now, or the goals into the future? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, the second half of this year is to roll it out nationwide, so to expand our reach beyond uh, just New South Wales. So we're looking to go into a few different states, um, South Australia in particular, um, Melbourne, perhaps even even Perth as well, uh, while focusing uh, on on New South Wales. Uh, which is our home state. So we're looking to roll out the bulk buy programs. We're in conversations with a number of communities to, to do exactly that. 
Um, and if, if people are interested in running local bulk buys themselves, they should give us a call um, or write an email to info at shinehub.com.au. Okay. And from the consumer then, uh, I mean, you know, if they ring up their local installer as opposed to going through a bulk buy, we've talked about some of the benefits in terms of, you know, getting the backing of, um, you know, yourselves and the installer. But are they going to, you know, traditionally people go into bulk buys because, you know, they're getting a discount. You buy something in bulk, the, the, the expectation is there's, there's some sort of discount. How does that work in, in this scenario? Exactly the same way. So uh, when we do the bulk buy, uh, because we're bringing in a lot of interested customers, um, like 110 from Northern Rivers, we negotiate um, discounted pricing from both the product suppliers, so the, the panels and batteries and so forth, and also the installation providers. So what that means is that the uh, homeowners get a really high-quality system for an exceptionally good good value. Um, and we encourage people to shop around, um, you know, they're obviously entitled to go whichever way they, they feel, um, but most people have felt that by going through the program, um, they get a great discount from a high-quality local provider, and they're getting top-quality products with the backing of a company looking after them. And you also mentioned um, you're working with the Solar Council. Can you tell me about what that project is? Yeah, well, we're really excited to be partnered with the Australian Solar Council and their network of master installers. Um, the Australian Solar Council has been beefing up their in their master installer program, which is an additional training uh, and quality assurance program that certifies local installers, local solar companies, as master installers. So going above and beyond um, to have a better customer experience, a higher level of quality, and a higher level of reliability for their installations. Okay. Um, so we partner with, with them to provide the independent advice to homeowners and then to connect those homeowners with the right local installers in, in their area. Mm-hmm. And I mean, you know, solar makes sense uh, kind of anyway, but by doing the, the bulk buy, what kind of a level of discount are, are homeowners kind of looking at a reasonable, realistic expectation? Mm-hmm. Well, the beautiful part about it is that through the bulk buys, uh, we've, we've found a way to not only give around 10% discount on the overall system value, but also uh, through partners that are doing some pay-as-you-go options, um, you can actually switch to solar and battery power in most cases for less than what you're currently paying on your electricity bill today, yeah. uh, especially in states like South Australia and, and, and New South Wales, which just saw a huge price rise in, in the cost of power. Mm. Okay. And are you seeing much of a take-up in... Um the combination of a solar and battery system as opposed to just sort of a standalone solar? Yeah, um, about two-thirds of the, of the homeowners that signed up for the bulk buy uh, in Northern Rivers chose to get a battery, and they feel it's a great way to become more solar self-sufficient and really have their own power and not have to rely on you know, somebody else or some other business or government to take care of them and, and manage the rules for that. So uh, we offer both they're panel only or panel plus battery systems, and it just depends on what each each person feels is best for them. Yeah, and are you seeing any patterns with that? I mean, obviously batteries are kind of the new kit on the block, but what's your um what's your projections and based on uh, you know current patterns with that? Mm-hmm. 
most most people we speak with, they want to be in control of their energy costs and in, in control of their lifestyle. One of the biggest things that has happened as people have gotten higher and higher energy bills is they start to cut back on the things that they like to do in their house. So things like air cons or pools or uh, whatever other electrical appliances it may be. Uh, what they found is that in trying to reduce their bills, they're actually cutting back on those things that they use. And so for a lot of folks, um, having the, the solar and battery storage allows them to have the power they need, no matter what, to run the house as they want to. And so we're seeing that to be a really popular option is to get a little bit extra power for now and be able to run the entire house for the majority of days of the year straight from sunshine, day or night. And, I mean, obviously that's um, much like solar. Um, you know, battery costs will probably be on a similar trajectory of getting more and more affordable. So going forward, I think it'll kind of become probably a little bit of a no-brainer that people will, will do the combination of, of the both of them. But how how does this kind of, um, you know, when you started out compared to now, what's that kind of breakdown of numbers as to who's going with batteries and, and where do you see, you know, when we're talking about a, a solar system with batteries, is it kind of double the cost or what's the, what's the cost differentiation with, the, with um, this, the systems you're offering at this point in time? That's a, that's a great question, Aaron. Uh, I think there's been a lot of different pricing out there in, in the market, and what we've, what we've seen is that a lot of folks, when they're just getting into batteries, they haven't really done it before. Uh, it takes a long time to install. Uh, they're kind of learning, learning on the job, and that's one of the things that we've figured out how to solve for uh, by working with the additionally trained, so the local solar companies that have that battery certification. Mm-hmm. Um, for, for the bulk buy, uh, we, we've been able to bring solar and battery packages all the way down to under $10,000 fully installed for the base packages. Mm-hmm. For a typical family size uh, solar and battery package, or in, for the bulk buys, typically in the twelve dollars to $13,000 range for a panel and battery system uh, completely installed. So with, with that kind of a, a price point, it makes the entire package actually more cost-effective than staying on the grid. Um, some of the, the pay-as-you-go options are you know, around $40 a week um, for, for that kind of a package. So it can actually be more cost-effective uh, to, to switch to that, that kind of solution rather than staying, staying on the grid. And so what's the feedback that you're getting from, from um, the communities that you're working with? Because, you know, there was a talk about, um, you know, the kind of death spiral and, and um, which, is, which is still a reality in terms of more and more people going off grid. But, you know, there's plenty of people who want a, want a solar system, want a battery system, but aren't necessarily about going off the grid. What's the kind of feedback that you're getting from those communities that you're working with that are going into these bulk buying systems? Are they kind of adamant they want to be standalone or they just want the battery system as you know, kind of part of a backup to, but still being connected to that broader nationwide you know, grid system? Yeah, I think it's, it's another great question because uh, there's two ways of going. Like you're saying, you can stay on the grid, which means you still have access to that, that grid power, but you're using your panel powder in the daytime and battery power at night first. And that's the most popular solution just because it makes the most sense right now. Um, most, most people would prefer to stay on the grid and act in some sort of a community power or shared power future where 
they're able to share power with their neighbors and get and get fair credits for that. Um, the question is whether or not local legislation and national legislation will allow for that. So the majority of, of people who've signed up have stayed on the grid and are planning on participating in that community energy uh, sharing idea. Uh, however, because that's not really allowed by the legislation, uh, we're, we're holding off and seeing where, where that goes. Yeah, okay. No, it's just interesting because... Um which, way, which direction that will go, and obviously batteries kind of enable that a little bit more, but, um, you know, there's some sort of benefits both ways, and, um, you know, I don't think people necessarily just want batteries to be standalone. They still can see the benefits of, if they're getting a fair price, selling back into the grid. It's it's about, I suppose, that, that feeling like they're getting a fair price for the investment that they've put in. Exactly, and and that's the, that's the frustration that we're seeing right now. We just got an... Uh, a message from one of our customers who recently got a solar battery system installed. And one of the things he said is, this is a great initiative, and I commend you know, Shine Hub and your suppliers for getting stuck in and not waiting for politicians to make the decision. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was something really pervasive that we've seen a lot in the media about you know, politicians or big business kind of battling back and forth on what to do with, with energy and, and energy policy. And... Nothing's really happened for homeowners yet. There's been blackouts. The rates went up almost 20% the, just this past month, and there's no real action coming to help homeowners. So the big, the big message that we're getting from the communities is the communities are tired of waiting. Mm-hmm. You know, you're seeing America pulling out of the, the, the Paris Agreement uh, in terms of the you know, green, green um, world, world vision. And you're seeing a, a American communities and, and local businesses kind of stepping up to the plate to replace that. The same exact thing is happening in Australia, where local communities are saying, you know what, we need to take care of this ourselves. The, the, the politicians and businesses that are in, in power have not been sorting this out. And the community bulk buys are a way of gathering everyone together so that they can then produce their own power and make their own decisions rather than being reliant on someone else. Yeah, and I think that's a really important point, and I've had quite a lot of focus on um, my radio shows in recent time about that, and the action is predominantly coming from that local community, local government, and to a certain extent state government, and and really that's, you know, Trump pulling out of of Paris was, um, you know, a pretty uh, not pleasant thing, but at the same time... You know, he's kind of made himself redundant and so many in, in the states, at least sort of state and city level legislations, um, you know, state and city level authorities have stepped up um, and, you know, some of the literature that I'm reading, that they can meet their Paris goals without relying on the federal level. Um, and, and, you know, we've seen that time and time again of cities and local authorities kind of, of stepping up and Interestingly, um, BZE did a, um, hosted an, a pre-launch event for the new Al Gore movie on Friday night. We're going to talk about that a little bit later in the show. But, um, you know, they ha- I don't know if you've seen the film yet, but they had uh, Al Gore talking to a Republican mayor of a town in Texas, Georgetown, I think it was. And yeah. It just made sense. You know, it made sense for them to go to 100% renewables. Um, and, you know, when you can get the ideology out of it and it just makes sense on a financial level 
And that's what I think we're seeing more and more people doing, whether it's a bulk buy scheme, whether it's local governments putting in solar farms. Uh, you know, this is where the action is at, is at that community and local level. Exactly. And um, I was really inspired to see the Beyond Zero Emissions plan for local communities to, to go to 100% renewable. Um, back in September, I spoke with Solar Citizens launching their uh, and, and get up 100% um, homegrown power plan for Australia where they illustrated how it was in fact possible and it was really up to the people to really help this, help propel this change. Um, and then last week we actually took our team to the Climate Realities uh, pre-showing of the Inconvenient Sequel, Al Gore's mm-hmm. new movie, yeah. uh, Truth to Power. That was again very, very inspiring and a reminder that the people around the world that care about this we can make a difference. And that's what the bulk buy has really shown to a lot of folks in, in climate reality and why we've now partnered with them to run bulk buys around Australia is because that single event in Northern Rivers, 110 people signing up with, with half, over half of them getting battery systems, that's the same thing as building a on-demand peak power station. Mm. And so if we can simply continue to do that over the next you know, year, two years, we can have thousands of homes around Australia providing power to offset that, that peak time, and we can we can make the change. We can put our stake in the ground and saying, look, we don't have to wait for the politics. We don't have to wait for these decision cycles and these reviews and these this, that, and the other. Solar and battery power is cheaper than the grid power today mm. in most cases. And if we just understand how easy it is to make that shift, we can understand how we can we can propel that shift as people together. And that's what Shine Hub is here to help with. Yeah, look, that's great. Well, look, it's been really interesting to talk with you today, Alex. I'm glad to see that that work is going on and um, it'll be interesting to, to see that roll out. And I think the point you make is really important that, you know, by these communities banding together and when you can get a bunch of sort of, you know, over 110 households, you're effectively, you know, doing the same as building a power station more or less um, and can, you know, really do a lot of um, a lot of good towards uh, moving the whole uh, system into a effectively a renewable energy source, whether that's one main main um, thing or dispersed over a whole lot of, of um, residential rooftops, the effect is, is the same and it's, it's how we need to move forward. And imagine, imagine that, Aaron. If we had thousands of, of homes that were providing the people-powered power plants and they were the ones in control of our energy future, not someone in a, in a meeting room somewhere or in a politics room somewhere, it was each individual household supporting Australia and providing that power. Yeah. And, you know, I re- you know that's going to be the future. It, it's like you say, you know, this kind of revolution is happening and it's not waiting for, for the powers that be people have, have now. You know, we've got the technology and it's just kind of keeping on rolling it out. So, so well done for um, your initiative with that. And we look forward to seeing you, uh, you know, further work throughout the country. So thanks for talking to us today, Alex, and we look forward to chatting again. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Aaron. Honored to be on the on the program today. Bye bye. Okay. Cheers. Feeling shortchanged by all the doom and gloom of climate change and want to help? Beyond Zero Emissions is an internationally recognised climate solutions think tank that is focused on solutions, not problems. At BZE, we have a blueprint to help Australia become a thriving zero emissions economy, but we are dependent on public donations, so we need your help. 
to donate or find out more information, head to bze.org.au. That's bze.org.au. So, listeners, today on the show we've got Dan Gosher. Dan is from Market Forces. Welcome, Dan. Thanks, Karen. Look, for those of our listeners that aren't familiar with Market Forces and, and the um, work that you do, can you just give us a little bit of a rundown on you know, the history and objectives of Market Forces? Sure. Uh, so we're an affiliate project of Friends of the Earth, and I guess you'd call us an environmental activist organisation. Um, we campaign primarily on, on banks, um, insurance companies and, and super funds, uh, and try and encourage them to... Yeah, shift money away from fossil fuels um, and in, an, in an attempt to, uh, to address climate change, obviously. Um, so we've been around for about five years, um, and I joined Market Forces about two and a half years ago. Yeah, great. And look, I think, um, you know, divestment as a tool has been a, fe- a pretty effective way of bringing attention to, um, you know, the risk of climate change and what people can actually do um, just purely in their their spending and, and placement of their, of their money. So uh, I think it's um, important that we work on all fronts and, and certainly the financial one is um, something that you guys take time to point out the best way to do that. Yeah, it is. We, we've spent a lot of time um, working on divestment and, um, you know, whether it's shifting your bank account or, or your super fund um, or your energy company for that matter, um, there are a, rough, uh, a range of things that individuals can do take action on climate often it feels like it's, uh, it's bigger than bigger than we are um, but there is there are definitely things you can do yeah look today what we particularly want to focus on is the report that you've just put out this month risky business which looks at superannuation funds and the level of you know disclosure that they're making um, the what uh, directors are looking at in terms of those real risks associated with climate. And obviously, you know, it's a pretty important role being a trustee of a superannuation fund. And really, these organisations and those individuals have a real responsibility to adequately outline what the risks are. But um, from the report that you put out, it looks like a lot of them are pretty uh, subpar on acknowledging some of those risks. Can, so can you tell us a bit about that report and, and how it came to be and what the key findings were? Sure. Uh, well, look, I, I guess the primary finding is that 82 out of Australia's 100 largest super funds are failing to disclose or adequately disclose climate risk to their members, um, which is a pretty stark finding, to be honest. And I think, I mean, the point uh, of the research was I've been at this for a while and, you know, we began to notice that, you know, it was always the same kind of 10, 15 and 20 funds that were, um, I guess, vocal and communicating well enough with their members that they were explaining what climate, climate change meant for their, um, their superannuation, um, and the types of investments that they were, um, potentially trying to avoid, um, whether it was, um, you know, certain types of, um, power stations, be it brown or, or black coal or, um, or tar sands or, of these kinds of um, sectors. Um, so about um, six months ago, we said, okay, well, let's look at the whole sector and who's acting and who's not. Um, and I guess we try to come up with a with a criteria. And it, to be honest, it's a, it's a pretty simple criteria. We didn't want to make it. Um, there's a bunch of other organisations out there that do ratings, 
if you like. Um, one of those being the Asset Owners Disclosure Project. Mm-hmm. Um, now that's a, that does a global survey of, um, I guess, super, uh, pension funds, insurance companies, and the like, um, and, and gives them a rating. You know, the kind of ABC type um, type rating. Um, we didn't want to get on that path. We essentially wanted to give it almost like a path fail exercise as to who's you know meeting a minimum criteria in terms of disclosure to their members. Um, so in order to provide adequate disclosure, you needed to have either a policy or a position statement on climate change, mm-hmm. and you needed to provide some kind of research or background context to your uh, to your members on what that meant, what climate change means for their portfolio. Um, so um, out of the top 100 funds, eight, just 18 funds provided adequate disclosure, um, and there's there's a pretty big difference between, you know, those 18 funds in that group. Um, we didn't want to get into the, the debate around who's a leader and who's not, but uh, there's definitely um, there are definitely some leaders in there. And um, I guess if you look at our report, you can we provided a couple of good examples of uh, what good disclosure looks like. Um, then we found um, another 22 funds which provided what we call inadequate disclosure. And by that we mean that they've mentioned climate change in a uh, sustainability policy, for instance, mm-hmm. um, and that's just a single mention, um, <laughs> and that's all. Um, and to be honest, that is a very low bar <laughs> to be considered inadequate. Um, and it's kind of not do. core business, you know. It's not part of core yeah. business, isn't it? It's kind of a thing that you you know put off on the side there and um, as a light and That's fluffy right. stuff. But but this is really important because you know a whole lot of people's you know the nation's wealth is tied up in superannuation, and if we've you know got that money in assets that are not you know, have huge risk associated with them. Um, and we'll get into talking a little bit about those categorizations. You met in your report, you've got the transitional risk and physical risk. So we'll get into talking about maybe, you know, defining what those things are and, and um, whether or not any, you know, how the funds dealt, dealt with those two different things. Mm, that's right. And um, I think what that, what that middle category means about inadequate disclosure is essentially funds are just saying that this is a, an environmental issue or a, um, what they call an ESG issue, um, which basically means that it's not a primary driver um, that's going to move, going to shift money in or out of an investment. Um, it's a kind of a secondary thought, if you like. Mm. Um, and I guess the, the, the most alarming finding of the research was that 60 out of the, the 100 largest funds provide no disclosure on climate risk whatsoever. Um, so that's no mention anywhere in a, in a PDS, in an annual report, in a policy, nothing at all. Um, and to be quite frank, actually a few funds actually say that we don't, we don't consider any environmental issues at all when investing. Um, so, I mean, that's yeah, that seems to smack of. Um, I mean, these people have a have a responsibility, not just you know for their bottom line, but um, you know these funds can't exist without responsibility to those directors, and that's really not addressing that, isn't it? No, it's not. But and I think what what tends to happen is a lot of these the trustee directors rely on, or kind of I guess revert back to what the law says, and the law is about this sole purpose test, and that means that superannuation funds are there for the, the best interests of their members, i.e. to provide uh, an income in retirement. Um, 
And that is a really, I guess, they're taking a very narrow definition of what that means. Mm. Um, you know, we obviously have a, a much broader view, which means that, you know, it's great to have a retirement income, but it's not so great if you don't have a planet to enjoy it on. No, exactly. Um, and or if you're investing in industries that, that have no future or in a you know transition period. And that's, that's precisely right. Um, and, you know, and these things um, are coming to the fore. Um, and I think... Look, we coupled this research with uh, a legal opinion that we sought from a respected barrister named Noel Hutley. Um, and what we're seeing is the legal community is shifting in their view of, of climate risk in that, you know, it, it used to be seen as just an environmental issue and, you know, that um, certain companies would need to change in order to address climate change. But on the whole, it wasn't posing a financial risk. And that opinion has changed over the last six to 12 months, maybe perhaps even longer. Mm-hmm. Um, but now we're seeing um, APRA in February, which is APRA is the Australian Prudential Regulatory Authority, and they regulate banks and super funds. And now their opinion is that it's no longer an environmental issue. It is a, it is a material financial issue. And, uh, you know, not just banks, but banks, insurers and super funds have to take action. Um yeah, and you, you'd think, I mean, you know, I know in going back a while, some research that I was doing quite a way back, you know, the insurers are actually really st- stepping up and, and understanding this, maybe more so th- than other industries because, you know, and the, and the reinsurers particularly, because they're the ones that are wearing the brunt of, you know, these increased natural disasters and, uh, you know, all their models of, um, you know, what was reasonable in the past are now kind of off the scale. Uh, that, that's that's very true. Um, the likes of uh, Swiss Re and Munich Re, big, the big reinsurance companies, um, have been at the forefront of of not just research but of uh, I guess vocalising, you know, what they see uh, to be the risks of climate change. And I guess uh, I guess in Australia, Australia's insurers um, have been a bit a bit lax in I guess communicating as much to to uh, to the public. Um, they're certainly aware of climate risk and what it means for their, I guess, their claims. Um, you know, we're, uh, both Suncorp and IAG have experienced, um, you know, large claims from, you know, repeated storms and cyclones and so on over the last, um, you know, five to ten years. Mm. Um, but I guess they're not really participating so much in that public conversation around taking action on climate. They are doing a hell of a lot of work in mitigation. So looking at building standards and building codes and so on and, and uh, looking at building flood levies and that kind of thing. Um, but it's that public conversation that we'd like to see insurers, I guess, participating in more. Mm. And, I mean, a lot of those businesses that are in insurance, you know, may also have a superannuation arm as well. So I suppose it's kind of joining those dots, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. Often... Um, it's not just insurance companies too, it's, it's the banks. So mm. particularly with a lot of the retail super funds, um, you know, they're, they're part of these big financial conglomerates. Um, you know, Colonial's part of Combank and MLC's part of NAB and, and so on and so forth. Um, but often the thinking that you'll see at the, at the corporate level, um, and this is particularly the case with, um, with Combank, where you've got the bank coming out and saying they're committed to two degrees and so on. Um, but that doesn't necessarily translate to each of the, the arms of their business. Mm. Um, so whether that's the, you know, the, the, the colonial super fund or whether it's the, the Commonwealth Bank staff super fund, um, the Commonwealth Bank staff super fund says nothing about climate risk to its members. And this is the bank.
own staff um, within that fund. Mm. Um, so there's a huge disconnect between, you know, what's being said at, a, at the, I guess, the parent company level mm. and one what's actually happening within its subsidiaries. And, and why do you think that is? Do you think the, you know, the, the statements about the two degrees, etc., is that just, you know, an example of lip service to this to these issues? <laughs> it's quite possible. Um, I'd like to think it's not, um, because you know, I mean, Combank and NAB and ANZ and Westpac, they've been they've been a subject of campaigning, um, particularly on their lending to fossil fuels mm-hmm. for some time, and, and not just from market forces from. You know, the likes of 350 and Greenpeace and um, a whole bunch of other groups. So um, we'd like to think it's not just lip service, and we are seeing some change in their lending practices. Mm. So they haven't been lending as much to coal mining and and um, and coal-fired power stations. Um, but it's it's almost like a cultural shift, and yeah. I think these, these things just take time. So, I mean, these, these commitments to Paris have only really come about in the last kind of 12 to 18 months. And, you know, perhaps it just takes that little bit of extra time for it to filter through to, you know, every, every mm. tentacle of their, yeah. their organisation, if you like. Well, I suppose, you know, those large organisations do, um, like you say, by nature of all, all the different arms, um, they don't turn around quickly, do they? No, no. I mean, these are organisations that employ tens of thousands of people. Mm. Um, and uh, I know from having worked um, at some of them that, you know, uh, cultural change isn't easy. It takes a long time. And, you know, we, we want to see it happening yesterday. But, um, you know, hopefully by us putting this research out and by the legal community coming out with, you know, some pretty strong opinions about how they feel about climate risk or how members should um, be informed about climate risk, then these organisations will be um, prompted to move more quickly. Yeah. Do you think there's a case for, um, you know, legal uh, challenge around the responsibilities that those directors have and them not um, living up to them in terms of the, of the climate risk to members? Is that something that, you know, you see as a as an adequate avenue for for, for lobbying and action, or is that how do you how would you view that? Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. It's a it's a genuine avenue. Um, I, I'd say it's inevitable that there's legal action, um, and that doesn't necessarily mean a member suing a trustee for a loss. Um, that could just be, you know, potentially members taking it to a, um, you know, the superannuation complaints tribunal, um, and and getting a ruling from from that kind of body, that kind of regulatory body. Mm-hmm. Um, but longer term, I, I, I think it's inevitable that there would be some kind of action. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't, you know, the, I guess the superannuation industry, or the, the large funds, there's about 200 funds or something like that, and, you know, not all of them are taking action. Um, so it's inevitable that, you know, one member suffers a loss in one of those funds and then takes action against that fund. And what have you seen in the trends as, as um, you know, to the to the funds that are actually kind of putting this out there, not as a secondary thought, but as a primary motivator, and actually kind of taking the proactive route, and and that's their kind of sales pitch is that you know we invest ethically in A, B, and C or whatever it may be. How are you seeing the numbers? Are those funds growing, and at what kind of numbers? Oh, they're definitely growing. Um, there's uh, look, I mean, the most um, obvious example of that is Australian Ethical. Um, and they've been around for some time, but uh, I think they're, they're they're growing at a, an alarming rate, to be honest, over the last few years. 
Um, I couldn't give you the exact numbers, but the, uh, the Responsible Investment Association of Australia puts out an annual report, and I know that they track how much money is coming into, you know, ethical or responsible funds, mm-hmm. and it really is growing um, at, a, at, a, at an exponential rate. Yeah. Um, so there is definitely an opportunity there for funds to pitch themselves, you know, as a green or an ethical option. Mm-hmm. Um, and that doesn't necessarily mean that they have to be out of, you know, everything that's deemed to be unethical. Um, I know Australian ethical takes quite a strong line, not just on fossil fuels, but on, you know, whether it's tobacco or gambling or um, a whole bunch of other sectors. Um, but, you know, different funds can market themselves different ways. And there, there is um, definitely room for um, to be pitching themselves as green funds. Um, and a couple of examples of that, uh, local government super, for instance, um, they, they divested from coal and tar sands, um, how was that, about, about three years ago now. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a couple of AMP funds also that are out of coal and tar sands. So, you know, and this is just, I guess, the first steps, if you like, in divesting from fossil fuels. So, you know, we would be encouraging these funds to be looking at getting out of um, fracking, for instance, or, or other elements of the fossil fuel industry or, or the tick altogether. Um, but, you know, funds take their time in, in taking these steps um, in, you know, trying to ensure that they're still making returns for members. Yeah. So, yeah, you look, there's definitely an opportunity there for, for funds. Yeah. Now, now, you outline a couple of risks, and we might just... Um, you've got transitional risks and physical risks. Can you just define for our listeners the difference between those two things? Yeah, sure. Um, so these are definitions that I guess have been bandied about for some time. And um, Financial Stability Board, which is, a, I guess, a, uh, an offshoot of the G20, um, they came up with these definitions um, through their task force on climate-related disclosure. And um, transition risks, I guess, relate to the shift away from fossil fuels and into renewables. So that could come in, um, in, in forms of legal risk. So if governments were to put regulation on emissions, what that would impact that would have on certain businesses. Um, it could be technology risk. Um, so as, as, techno- as technology improves in, say, renewables and batteries, what impact that has for, say, uh, coal and gas-fired power generators. Mm. Um, um, and then you've got um, transition risks. Um, now, transition risks, uh, sorry, um, physical risks, I should say, um, are, you know, related to the actual um, changes in the climate. Um, so these could be uh, acute changes. Um, so they could be like uh, storms or cyclones, that kind of thing, or um, the changes just in increased temperature and what stress um, that would put on infrastructure, for instance, or properties. Sure. So, you know, different um, harvest cycles and, um, you know, fish migration patterns and things like that for, for say, agricultural. Yeah, the, that's right. The agriculture sector is, is particularly vulnerable. To physical risks, whereas, um, say, infrastructure, for instance, would be um, vulnerable to, um, to just the physical. So, if you took a, a motorway, for instance, I mean, that would be vulnerable to heat stress. And how's this? How's the report being received? Um, pretty well, actually. Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, it was obviously picked up in Fairfax on Thursday, and then um, a lot of sectoral media, um, so a lot of the kind of finance and industry media has been picking it up since then. Um, and we're hoping to see it kind of carry on through this week. Yeah. And, you know, we, we'd, we'd like to echo the legal opinion as much as we could because that's, I think, going to have a, a lasting impact on how trustees think and behave. Yeah. Um, so we're going to be doing our best to kind of amplify that 
not just in the legal community, but in the, uh, I guess, the trustee community. Yeah, and I think that's a, you know, a really big thing of, of moving climate risk away from people just thinking of it in the kind of as an ethical problem and, and all that's kind of off the side as a and in the environmental kind of grab bag it needs to come into being you know sometimes the only way you can get certain sectors of the community to think about something is if it's absolutely seen as a genuine business financial risk isn't it absolutely yeah and um, particularly you know the people who are making the investment decisions every day um, you know they're looking at companies and how they will survive over the next um, you know, where, whether it's the next six months or the next five years and, you know, how they tackle climate and the risks that they pose, that climate, you know, the transition risk poses to their businesses, you know, that, that's, that's going to have a material impact on how the company performs. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, well, look, congratulations. It's great to have the, this work out there and getting picked up um, in, um, you know, the mainstream, which is where it needs to be and where it deserves to be. So we congratulate you on that. Um, for our listeners, the website is marketforces, we'll make sure I get this right, .org.au. That's right. And um, you can have a look on there and see the other campaigns that Market Forces are involved in. Um, there's some easy links to look at how to look at your own, you know, super and switching super and um, understanding a little bit more about where you place your money and um, whether that's aligned with with your own values so I'd encourage listeners to have a look at that and um, you know these things about where you place you know whether it's simply your bank accounts or your super really do matter uh, so I'd encourage you to give some thought to that and, and um, get the information about how these different organisations are performing so thanks Dan great to have a chat and um, we look forward to chatting again in the future okay yes. thank you bye bye Well, thanks, Dan. It was really great to have a chat with, with him about that new research. The other thing that BZE has done um, last Friday was hosted a film night with the new Al Gore film, An Inconvenient Sequel. And uh, that was really well received by the audience. And we got a comment, some comments from a few people that came along. So I'd encourage everyone to go out and find that film. It's in broad release at all of the major cinema complexes. So please go out and have a look at that. Could you guys give me a comment about what you thought about the film? I think it was amazing. I think it was um, very uh, an eye-opener, particularly for me. My background is in the developing world, and there's, you know, it's there's never been a time in the world where where it's like we're standing on a pivotal moment where we really have to do something. We really have to embrace uh, renewable energy 100% to give up. You know, future generations, especially of developing countries, um, to just take that chance and, and make a difference. Yeah. And did you have you seen the first film? What did you think about the? I've never seen the first film. I just heard about it. So my my daughter here um, invited me for for this, and yeah, it's just mind blowing. Just the the passion of someone um, really going after this and not quitting in the face of um, you know all the obstacles that he's faced. Um, but then it just yeah, I think one other thing I picked up from the film is um, it's um, very easy to get disheartened, especially when you have people like Donald Trump and you know people who don't believe 
um, we have an obligation to do anything about this. Um, but you, you, there's many more people who are optimistic and are involved in this fight, so we can't let the few people deter us from doing what is right. You know, I think everyone, the whole world, um, really needs to join in with this, um, wherever you come from in the world, because the planet is ours, you know, and we have a responsibility. And so you're saying you've got experience in the developing world. Can you tell me a little bit more about where that is and, and what, what your experience is? Um, I'm a doctor, so I, I live and work here in Australia. Um, but I originally come from Nigeria, which is one of those nations that is, uh, has about 170 million people. It's your China and your India of uh, a few years down the line. Um, there's a population explosion. They have one of the highest fertility rates in the world. And, you know, unfortunately, um, they, they are one of the largest oil-producing countries in Africa. I think it's the second largest. And there's a lot of dependence on fossil fuels. There's a big energy uh, shortage um, in Nigeria. Um, they have there's a huge energy dependence on fossil fuels in Nigeria and it, it's, it's something that really needs to take hold um, solar um, there's not much wind that I know of in Nigeria but there's huge amount of sun there and it can be harvested there's a huge um, encroachment of the Sahara um, desertification desertification um, the whole of the Sahel savannah in uh, Nigeria is just pushing down and is eating up the Guinea savannah, lots of droughts and there's a lot of um, um, skirmishes as a result of it, that's where you've had the rise of Boko Haram um, and the rise of terrorism in a country, I grew up in Nigeria, there was no terrorism there and everyone sort of coexisted okay there together and now there's a huge rise in that. Um, I also have a lot of experience in tropical medicine and I've seen a huge change in disease patterns throughout the whole world. I used to work in the um, UK, I moved here uh, six years ago. So I, I see malaria in places where you never used to have malaria. I see all sorts of tropical diseases in places you never expected to be because of climate change. We really have to do something about it um, because it's actually basically going to come and get you wherever you are um, so you don't have to be Australian to get on board this thing you don't have to be um, from any particular part of the world developed or developing um, you just have to be someone from earth to really care about this and someone with children you know um, I'm very proud of my daughter for inviting me here <laughs> well we're really glad you both came thank you very much for talking with us thank you take care Hi, my name's Sigmund Malta. Um, yeah, I thought the movie was really powerful and really well put together. It really illustrated the issues and the change and the improvements in uh, climate change and the technologies that uh, we've come up with to deal with it. Did you see the first uh, film? No, I jumped straight in at the sequel. Okay. I don't think you needed to see the first one to make sense of the second one in this, in this instant. Yeah, I... I got the impression it probably recap some of what was in the first one, but yeah, it, it stood well on its own. Hello, I'm James. Uh, I was very moved by the film. It it, it really hit hit home, uh, and and uh, as 
shocking as some of the film was, it also gives uh, me hope that there is a a future, and uh, I'm I'm very fortunate and happy that I am working in the renewable energy industry and that I can contribute to what El Gore is, is, is trying to do. Great. Thank you very much. Hi, my name is Namibia. Um, I thought the film was very powerful, um, particularly the message that it was giving, the fact that the choices we make now impact our future and the future, you know, future generation. Um, it's a great way of spreading a message um, that I think the world is starting to talk about more. So I was very excited um, to see that particularly the message at the end, um, was really a call to action, and I thought that was very important. Yeah, I think so. And what do you think that you can do to encourage people to to go out and see the film? Obviously, tonight was a um, pre-launch. I think officially the film opens on the 10th. But what would you say to um, people that may not consider going along or someone that might not be as um, keen to kind of see something like this? What would you, how would you encourage someone like that to go and have a look? Well, I think um, that's a great question. I do think that if you give yourself an opportunity to maybe learn something different, um, branch out, uh, watch a film that you probably wouldn't otherwise give an opportunity to see, um, you'll be impressed by the information you're learning, but not only that, how inspirational it can be. Um, and I'm sure that there are a lot of people out there who might not find this type of information interesting, but once you realize the impact that it has on our future, then you can definitely find it relatable. Great. Thank you very much. So that's our show for tonight. Um, I've been Erin Jones, and this is the Beyond Zero Emissions radio show. Thanks for joining us, and we look forward to talking with you next week. Beyond Zero Emissions is a not-for-profit research and education organisation. We design blueprints for a zero emissions economy. As climate change action becomes an emergency, leaders will use these well-researched plans that show a transition is possible from a 19th century fossil fuel-based economy with its climate-changing emissions to a zero emissions 21st century. Check out our website for reports on zero emissions energy, zero emissions exports and industry, zero emissions transport, zero emissions buildings and zero emissions land use. Podcasts of our shows contain a who's who of community action and climate solutions. They're all available on the web at bze.org.au.